morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We're going to be looking starting at verse 10 all the way down to chapter 12, verse 9. Last week we talked about the genealogy in chapter 10, which gave a list of Noah's descendants through his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, including a list of nations as the world existed all the way down to Moses' time, hundreds of years later. This week we have another genealogy. This one traces Shem's line down to Abraham, who is arguably the most important person in the book of Genesis, and one of the most important people in all of Scripture. So we will finish up chapter 11 this morning. Here at Randolph Baptist Church, we are using a VBS curriculum from an organization called Answers in Genesis. It's a good organization, and I'm certainly not attacking them. But when they talk about Answers in Genesis, they apparently mean Answers in Genesis 1 through 11, because that's pretty much their entire focus. I once knew an Old Testament professor in Arizona who spent most of the semester on Genesis 1 through 11 and then scrambled in the short time left to cover the other 39 chapters. The fact, however, is that Genesis 1 through 11 are just the introduction to the book. The real story begins in chapter 12, and that's where we will spend most of our time this morning. Before we do, let's pray. Lord, once again, we ask that you would help us shut out the world and focus on your word this morning. Use it to draw us closer to yourself. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, chapter 11 gives an account of Shem's genealogy. But we already had Shem's genealogy in chapter 10. Why another one? Shem's genealogy in chapter 10 was a big-picture overview of Shem's five sons and their descendants. Shem's genealogy in chapter 11, starting in verse 10, focuses solely on Shem's son, Arphaxad, and his descendants down to Abraham. This line goes from Arphaxad down to Eber, or Heber, from whom the name Hebrews probably comes. Then comes Eber's son, Peleg, during which time the Tower of Babel most likely occurred. Peleg became the father of Ru, the good friend of Piglet. Oh, wait, different Ru. Ru was the father of Nahor, who became the father of Terah. And Terah was the father of three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And that brings us up to the focus of these genealogies, which is the family of Abram, or Abraham, as he would later be called. Let's read verses 27 to 32. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram 
his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had sent to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now scholars dispute about the location of Ur. Some think it was close to the town of Haran in the north, not to be confused with Abram's brother Haran. But Acts 7.4 makes it clear that the town of Abram was from was in Mesopotamia. And the Ur in Mesopotamia was one of the oldest and possibly largest cities in the world in Abram's day. It was located in southern Iraq and was a shipping port on the Euphrates River, not far from where the river drained into the Persian Gulf. Ur was a very advanced city for its time. They had a written language, a good understanding of math, a sophisticated irrigation system, advanced architecture, a complicated legal code, and a school system for state leaders. They had a system of herbal medicine, and archaeologists have even found surgical instruments there, although I suspect that the surgery in Ur was even more traumatic than the so-called torture in Gitmo. They also paid taxes and drank beer. Ur's most famous king, Ur-Namu, ruled during Abram's lifetime. He was known for his massive building projects, including a ziggurat which stood over 70 feet high and a defensive wall system that may have stretched over 150 miles. They had one of the most powerful militaries in the, in the world at that time. My point in this little history lesson is to show that in chapter 12, verse 1, when God called Abram to go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, God was not asking him to leave a tent or a cave somewhere. He was asking Abram to forever leave his homeland, civilization, and security to go someplace he knew nothing about. Just imagine the questions Abram must have had. Would the land provide enough food to feed his family and their livestock? Or would they starve there? Would the people there accept him or kill him? And who was this God who was speaking to him anyway? He wasn't one of the gods of Abram's father. Terah worshipped other gods, according to Joshua 24, 2. But out of faith, Abram obeyed God. In fact, Abram apparently even convinced his father Terah to go with him. According to chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, Terah took Abram, Abram's wife Sarai, and his nephew Lot, and set out for Canaan. But it was a very long and undoubtedly difficult trip. After traveling over 600 miles, they came to the town of Haran, and Terah apparently decides he's had enough. He decides not to continue on to Canaan, but to settle down in Haran. The text doesn't tell us why Terah settled down in Haran, but Canaan was at least 400 more miles, so perhaps Terah just got too sick and worn out to continue. Whatever the case, he settled in Haran and died there. But Abram believed God. So after the death of his father, according to verse 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. 
So out of faith, Abram obeyed God and eventually came to Canaan where God appeared to him again. Verse 7 says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Now I'm sure that seemed like an impossible promise, since very powerful Canaanite tribes ruled the land, and they were not about to just hand it over. But Abram believed God. In verse 8, he built an altar near Bethel, practically in the middle of the land, and called on the name of the Lord. Abram worshipped God there and then continued on to the, to the Negev in the very south end of Canaan. By the time he got to the Negev, Abram had traveled through the entire land that God had promised to give to his descendants. Now, in addition to the promise to give the land of Canaan to Abram's descendants, there were some other promises in verses 2 and 3 that I skipped over. Let's go back and spend some time on those promises. The first promise in verse 2 is, I will make you into a great nation. This promise never came true in Abram's lifetime, but it was true of his descendants. And by the way, when we talk about Abram's descendants, we're not talking about all of his descendants. Genesis will later make clear that the promise would go to Isaac, not Ishmael, to Jacob, not Esau. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The promise was specifically to the children of Israel. The nation of Abram's descendants would later return from captivity in Egypt and take possession of the land that God had promised. In David's time, the nation of Abram's descendants was probably one of the most powerful kingdoms on earth. Even today, according to U.S. News and World Report, the nation of Israel is still the eighth most powerful nation on earth. God did indeed make Abram's descendants into a great nation. The second promise was, I will bless you. This one started coming true in Abram's lifetime. According to Genesis 13, too, Abram had become very wealthy in livestock, in silver, and gold. God did indeed bless Abram. The third promise in verse 2 was, I will make your name great. Abram's wealth and power made his name great in his own lifetime, but it was to become much greater in the generations to come. Chapter 17, verse 6 says that kings would descend from Abram, which came true. For example, King David, King Solomon, King Hezekiah, King Josiah, just to name a few. In our time, 4,000 years later, Abram is known as the father of three of the world's major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, with well over 2 billion adherents. God truly made Abram's name great. A fourth blessing, or fourth promise, in verse, four, verse 2 says, And you will be a blessing. This promise is expanded on in verse 3, which says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. We're going to see this worked out later in Genesis. Even when Abram acts in despicable ways, God still keeps his promise and ends up blessing him. For example, next week we'll see how Abram gives up his wife to save his own neck. As a result, God initially curses Pharaoh with disease and graciously saves and blesses both Abram and Sarai. When God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, I think that promise is still valid today. Dennis Prager, who is an Orthodox Jew, 
a university Torah professor and a talk show host, writes, nations that have treated Jews favorably, the United States being the most obvious modern example, have been blessed with prosperity and freedom. The reverse applies as well. In the medieval world, Spain went into an economic and cultural decline after 1492 expulsion of the Jews. In the modern era, Germany, the country that cursed the Jews of Germany and Europe with the Holocaust, then endured its own curse. During World War II, approximately 7.5 million Jews were killed. <clears throat> Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, however, writes that this promise to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, quote, does not pertain today to unbelieving ethnic Israel, but to Jesus Christ and his church. There are many Christians like Bruce Waltke today. They think that when the nation of Israel rejected Jesus, God rejected the nation of Israel once and for all and replaced Israel with the church. They would point to passages like Galatians 6, 16, where Paul calls the church the Israel of God. Or Paul's olive tree illustration in Romans 11, where unbelieving Jews are cut off and believing Gentiles are grafted in to the people of God. They may also point out that in Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, those who have faith are the children of Abraham. So God is done with Israel, they say. The church is now the only people of God, they say. Now, there's certainly some truth in what they say. The church has been grafted into the promises given to Abraham, and the church is the New Testament people of God. But that doesn't mean that God is done with ethnic Jews or the nation of Israel. None of those passages overturns God's promises to bless those who bless the Jews and curse those who curse the Jews. In fact, in Romans 11.1, 1, Paul specifically asks, did God reject his people? And the NIV translates Paul's answer as, by no means. But I like the Christian Standard Version that, that puts it, absolutely not. In other words, God has absolutely not rejected his people, the Jews. Paul then makes his point even more clear by saying, God did not reject his people. Now, Waltke and others like him would respond by saying that when Paul says God will not reject his people, his people are Christians, not Jews. Paul is supposedly asking, did God reject his people, the Christians? But that doesn't even make sense. Nowhere in Romans or any of Paul's other letters is there even a hint that God would reject Christians. And beside that, as you can see from the text of Romans printed on the back of your bulletin, the immediate context shows that Paul is talking about Israelites who have not accepted the good news, whom Paul, quoting from Isaiah, says, are a disobedient and obstinate people. The context is clear. Paul is talking about unbelieving Jews. And Paul is asking, did God reject these unbelieving Jews? And his answer is, absolutely not. God did not reject his people. It's hard to understand how Paul could have possibly been any more clear. A few verses later in Romans 11, Paul looks forward to a time when many or most of these unbelieving Jews will believe and be saved. As much as I respect Dr. Waltke, 
I'm convinced that he is just wrong on this issue. I believe that the promises and warning to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you is still valid today. Finally, the last promise in verse 3 is that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This could also be translated, all the nations or all the Gentiles on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I doubt that Abram had a clue what this meant. But the brilliant Rabbi Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew exactly what it meant. In Galatians 3.8, Paul quotes from Genesis 12.3 and makes the point that Christ was the seed of Abraham and that the nations or Gentiles will be blessed through Christ by faith. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, first, America beware. God will bless those who bless the Jews and curse those who curse the Jews. Increasingly in America, we are seeing hatred of Jews, also known as anti-Semitism, rearing its ugly head, especially in the universities, but even in Congress these days. God says, I will bless those who bless the Jews and curse those who curse the Jews. This does not mean Israel right or wrong, of course. Israel is not a perfect nation, and the Jews are not a perfect people. The prophets, Jesus and Paul, all had strong condemnation of their own Jewish contemporaries. And yet, there is a difference between hatred for Jews and criticizing them out of love for the purpose of leading them to repentance, as the prophets, Jesus and Paul did. Anti-Semitism is not only racist and wrong, it is also a very dangerous public policy. Our government is now appeasing Iran, which has threatened to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Iran supports and funds terrorism against Israel. I believe God will still curse those who curse Israel or the Jews. And as Bible-believing Christians, this should be a major consideration in how we vote. Second, as we will see in later sermons, this promise that all the nations or Gentiles of the world will be blessed through you is narrowed down in Genesis from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, also known as Israel. And from there, the focus goes on to one of the tribes of Israel, Judah, and then to one family in Judah, the family of Jesse, and then to one particular son of Jesse, King David, then to a particular descendant of David, one who, according to Micah 5, would be born in Bethlehem, but who, according to Isaiah 53, would be pierced for our transgressions, would be cut off from the land of the living. He would be assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, but he would be one whom the grave would be unable to hold. Jesus taught that he was that one, and the apostles were convinced that Jesus had fulfilled these prophecies. They were also, uh, they were also convinced by Jesus' phenomenal miracles, which no one denied in his time. They were also convinced that Jesus had actually physically come back to life in a resurrected body. In fact, they saw him, talked with him, touched him, and even ate with him after his resurrection. Jesus was the descendant of Abraham through whom God would bless all the nations or Gentiles by faith in him. Third, I think this passage tells us something about the nature of faith. Hebrews 11.8 says, by faith, Abraham, 
when he was called to go to the place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. This says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. At God's command, he left the safety and security and comfort of an advanced civilization to go to an unknown place where he would not have safety, security, or comfort. And that took faith, and his faith produced obedience. Faith obeys God. As it says in James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. In Romans chapters 1 and 16, Paul talks about the obedience that comes from faith. As Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Faith obeys God. Not perfectly, of course. We all struggle with sin. But if you have no inclination or desire to obey God, you don't have saving faith. For Abraham, faith in God was not easy. He left the security and comfort of Ur, one of the world's major cities at the time, to, as we will see, become a wanderer who lived in tents, faced famine, conflict, danger, the kidnapping of a relative, the death of loved ones, and even war. We are called to follow Jesus in faith. When we talk about accepting Jesus as our Lord and King, it is the idea of being devoted to him with the intention of following him wherever he leads. And that's not always easy. In fact, in Luke 14, when crowds were coming to Jesus, he warned them to count the cost. Because faith in Jesus involves a sincere desire, relying on the Holy Spirit, to follow and obey Jesus regardless of the circumstances. There are many here this morning who have shown exactly that kind of faith in their lives. They have faced all kinds of painful circumstances and emerged with their faith and love for Jesus intact. How about you? Do you have that kind of faith? Let's pray. Lord, grant that all of us here today would have the kind of faith to follow you, regardless of the circumstances. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes from 1 Peter 5. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Amen. <laughs>